Alright guys, welcome to the first episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Burke, and I'm delighted to say that my first guest for this inaugural podcast is Patrick Ward. Patrick has a Master's in Exercise Science, is a Strength and Conditioning Specialist, and is a licensed neuromuscular therapist working out of his own facility, Optimum Sports Performance, in Phoenix, Arizona. Patrick is also a great friend of mine, so it's an honor for me to have Patrick as my first guest on my first show. Patrick, it's brilliant to have you here, man. How are you doing? Hey, Robbie. Great. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. It's This is no pressure, right? Being the first person, I'm kind of scared now. I hope I, <laughs> I, hope I can live on hope I can live up to it. <laughs> All right. Well, sure. Like, as we said in our, in our, in our emails, like, we're just going to keep it chill. Just like, like me and Patrick, guys, for anyone that's listening, we, we, we Skype uh, regularly. We haven't Skyped in a, in a while, but we, we Skype regularly, and, um, you know, we definitely learn a lot. Well, I definitely learn a lot from him. I don't know if he learns that much from me, because I'm always bugging him with questions. But I, I uh, learned something from everyone. I learned something from everyone. <laughs> okay. Sure. Just... Patrick, I'd say, I'd say like most of the listeners will have an idea who you are because they're probably listeners from you know Strength Coach podcasts and and, and you know people from around that uh, area. But just for the people who don't know who you are, just just fill us in a bit more on your background. Uh, well, yeah, like you said, I've uh, um, I'm a strength coach or however you want to say it, and a, and a massage therapist. Um, so my company, Optimum Sports Performance, basically. Uh, right now, located in Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know if, if that'll change anytime soon, but uh, as of right now, that's where I'm at. Uh, and I do uh, physical performance training or strength and conditioning, however you want to say it, for athletes, uh, some general population clients, but a lot of times athletes. And uh, along with that, I also do hands-on therapies, soft tissue therapy or massage or manual therapy or however you want to say it. Those words sometimes mean different things to different people. And I use that stuff for a variety of reasons, and I'm sure we can probably talk about those uh, later on. I'm not entirely sure uh, what all you're asking me, but I'm sure we can get into that. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And um, so, so yeah, located in Phoenix, Arizona, and sometimes I get to travel around and see athletes or teams around the country, and, and that's always fun. But um, as of right now, Phoenix, but m- more, more uh, specifically, I guess Tempe, Arizona, right off the ASU campus, uh, is where. Uh, I have my little place, and yeah, it's pretty cool. People just kind of come in, and, and we do what we got to do, and and, uh, and that's it. Awesome. Um, who who would you say are your influences within within the field, and then also in your life? Like like how how have you got to where you are right now? Uh, wow. Well, that's a pretty loaded question. I mean, well, we we we've loads of time, so you you take your time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, influences in the field, I'm influenced by tons of stuff that I read and, and, and you know, obviously, you know, classics, like, if we're talking about training, it might be like Vershansky or Sif or Isserin, uh, you know, Mike Boyle's Functional Training for Sport was a, a big book in my development mm-hmm. early on in the early 2000s that really opened a lot of my eyes to a different approach to training and things like that in the soft tissue therapy or manual therapy realm, you know, things that I've read, uh, you know, Carol Lewitt and Yonda and Warren Hammer and Stecco and uh, Chetow and Delaney's clinical applications book and Travell and Simons and, and those sorts of things. But, uh, you know, all of that stuff kind of influences influences me and, and all the stuff on stress and Sapolsky. But I, I think probably my, my biggest influences are derived from the individuals that – I look up to in the field that I also have a professional relationship with. So they're not just like colleagues, but they're friends, and I can call them on the phone and and talk to them. And I'd say if we're talking about, like, the soft tissue therapy aspect of it and using that stuff, I mean, uh, Charlie Weingroff is probably, like, a guy that I think, you know, I think I put him very high, like, on a high pedestal as far as a guy who's taught me a ton. Um, He's a good friend, but... Like he's an he's been an incredible mentor and like help for me in terms of my development. Uh, Willem Kramer is, is another guy from a uh, uh, physiotherapist from the Netherlands who's like really always open to my emails and and me calling him on the phone or questioning him and so I, I've learned a ton from him as well. And uh, and Judith Delaney and her teacher uh, from the Neuromuscular Therapy Center, uh, Don Kelly. Uh, those two have, you know, those two are really great in my teaching, and, and I get to help them out with teaching the course when it when it's in Phoenix, and 
Uh, for those who don't know, she, she also co-authored the book Clinical Application of Neuromuscular Techniques with Leon Shetow. Mm. And that, that book, I mean, those two volumes are pretty dynamite if you're looking to put your hands on people and, 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 and learn some of this stuff. So um, she's been a huge influence. And, uh, and another guy, I guess, in, in that realm was a guy that was a teacher of mine when I was in massage school many years ago, uh, this guy named Don Miller. And he was like, uh, I feel like if I didn't have him as a teacher when I was going through school, I probably would have been much further behind in my massage training as far as how to implement it into what I do with strength and conditioning because he was like a, he runs a clinic that's just strictly orthopedic massage. It just deals with those, with orthopedic issues. And so he was really dynamite in terms of helping me develop thought process and, and things like that. And, and then from the training realm, I mean, guys that I, I, I get to talk to and, and have been in, incredibly influential, like Joel Jameson and uh, Dave Tenney has been, like, super influential in, in terms of energy system training and things like that. And, and, uh, and Landon Evans is another guy that um, I think really highly of uh, as far as, as that stuff goes. So, you know, there have been so many influences of stuff that I've read and picked up along the way, but the people that I have the professional relationship with um, have been, like, have been really great because they've taught me a lot and and I've been able to have open lines of communication with them to ask questions and and poke them with different questions that have helped shape my thought process through the years. Excellent, excellent. I, I, you know, there's a lot of people you named who would have a huge influence on me too. And I mean, I had the pleasure of of having Judith as as a as a as a um, teacher in in my HDIP in my new muscular therapy here in Ireland. And I had the pleasure also of meeting um, Don Miller. He visited me this around about this time last year, so they definitely are. Uh, great, yeah, definitely yeah great that's people. right. You did meet Don Miller. That's right. Yeah, I met Don. He's great, great guy. Great, uh, great to meet him. So it was um, <clears throat> assessment, Patrick, or screening. Well, both, I suppose. Um, there is this debate going on about the functional movement screen. Um, you know, you know, I suppose it's it's Vern and Beta. Vern has kind of come out against the FMS, and personally myself, I've had some um, conversation with Vern through Facebook, and I really get the impression that he's making a very um, uh, misguided prejudice. To me, he doesn't fully understand what the screen stands for, um, and he it's funny because he seems to promote Kelvin Giles's. Uh, version of the FMS, it's it's a slightly similar, it's a different ver variation of the FMS, but it's basically the same sort of premise. From what I see, it's basically looking at movement quality and, and your your basic movement competency. And he seems to promote this over the FMS, uh, which to me makes no sense because the philosophies of both systems seem to be the same. So, what what is your your uh, your take on on like assessment and functional movement screen, and why do you think? And it's not just Fern, because I've had this conversation with one or two other people. Uh, the, 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 to, and I'm trying to defend the functional movement screen because they seem to have this um, misunderstanding of, of what it is. So why do you think that is? Uh, well, I don't, I don't really know why people have a, a misunderstanding of what what it is. Uh, I mean, I'll start, I guess, answering this question by saying um, I don't know anything about the, the physical competency assessment other than like maybe an article or two that I've read. So... I can't really comment so much on what the differences or similarities are to that, so I'm not sure uh, entirely. I probably wouldn't be a great person to ask about that kind of thing. But I, I just, um, just just before you go on, I, like uh, me too now, I wouldn't know the intricate details of Kelvin Giles' system, but the philosophies that both I, I, I seem to be both the same from the FMS and from, from the PCA, which is... You know, movement quality before movement quantity, but yet Fern says the PCA he he promotes this, but doesn't promote the functional movement screen because I think he thinks the movement screen is something that it's not. Yeah, I think some of it may be uh, the way that it's represented in terms of people who are doing it and uh, who are doing the the functional movement screen and representing it in a maybe not the same way that Gray would represent it. I, I would always encourage people that you know, first of all, I don't work for functional movement systems, I don't, you know, they don't pay me money, so um, if you want to know what Gray thinks, then you, you should probably take the course and hear it from the horse's mouth, you know, firsthand. Uh, you know, what I can tell you is, anytime you have a certification in anything that's open to the public, that's open to the masses, 
um, there's always going to be room for someone to interpret it a certain way and promote it in their clinic or their training facility or their gym in a certain way. That might not be the exact way that you communicate it to the group when it's taught. It's mm-hmm. sort of like that game when you're in second grade and you're, you whisper you know, a statement in someone's ear and it goes around the room and by the time it gets to the to the last person, it's like a totally different statement. It doesn't even have the same, uh, you know, it doesn't even have a, 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 even a similar meaning than what it started as. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people look at it and they think, you know, they see like the uh, issues with things like, oh, asymmetry, the body's never totally symmetrical. And they see, they take issue with things like, well, you're just looking for dysfunction and you're going to waste all your time with corrective exercise and, and and you know they, they kind of like um, look at look at those things or they pick out that terminology and take shots at it. Realistically, I mean to me, and I feel like the way that it's presented when Gray teaches it, from what I've gathered, uh, and again I'd urge you to go and take the course yourself to hear it from him, is that it's it's basically nothing more than an appraisal to decide if someone should be training or if they should be in therapy. And it's just basically telling me, okay. Uh, when you do one of these seven movements, do they hurt? And I don't care, like, you know, every exercise is an assessment. Yes, I get that. But you cannot tell me that if someone squats down with body weight and their knee hurts, that you're going to gain any other beneficial information by loading that exercise and seeing what happens. Mm, okay? So, So the first thing, first and foremost for me, it's a great way just to see, like, okay, does this hurt? If it does, do I need to... You know, where do I go from there? Do I need to get the chiropractor or the physical therapist involved? Or do we need to go to the doctor? Or, you know, let's make sure that we just have, we have someone else on board that can help us out with this issue. Uh, the, the whole bit about asymmetry, I get it. The body's not totally symmetrical. I think everybody understands that. This is true. Sports are going to make us asymmetrical, especially if it's a sport that, you know, you're swinging a golf club always in the same direction or something like that. I get it. That makes sense. The scoring system, I feel like, with the functional movement screen allows for this great buffer zone of variability to make up for that, uh, for that asymmetry. So to give you an example, if we look at an active straight leg raise, we're... There's a huge amount of gray area where someone can get a, a two, which is the middle number. You, obviously, a one is uh, there's a one which is the poorest you can score, or zero actually, which means you have pain. But a one would be the poorest you can score without pain, and the three would be that the movement is pristine, it's perfect, it's it's exactly the full range of motion that you're looking for, uh, and a two would be the middle ground. And you know, gray says pretty specifically that we don't have to get threes, but it's nice if you can get people to all have a twos on all seven tests and it's symmetrical so that there's a, a straight 14. Um, so if you look at that active straight leg raise, there's this huge middle ground to score a two. And I feel like that's a reasonable, uh, reasonable range of motion to allow for an asymmetry. If someone can lift their right leg and, and bring it up in a straight leg raise to 90 degrees and then they lift their left leg and they only get to you know, 60 or 50 degrees, like to me, that's maybe that's maybe it's an adaptation to their sport, but it's definitely something that's going to make me say, "Oh, wait a minute, why is this? Like, what can what can this be?" And this is something that we maybe need to investigate further, um, think more about, think about their sport. You know, what, what where can we go with this? So, th- those are the two main things that I gather from it: is that it gives you information one about are, is this person in pain, and a lot of times athletes don't tell you that they're hurt, right? They, especially if you're training a team. It's not uncommon for the athletes to come in, oh, yeah, I feel great, I feel great, and then six weeks down the road in your squatting program, they're like, man, my low back's killing me. It's like, wow, how long has that been happening? Oh, well, you know, um, it's been hurting for the past year, but, you know, I just figured I wasn't, you know, I, I just figured I needed some strength, so I thought this would help, and it's like now we're six weeks in, and now we have a real problem. Whereas <laughs> if you took... 10 minutes to just do the screen and then you know you see them do some funky things and you're like hey what's you know when you're squatting down kind of shifting over are you okay like yeah you know coach my uh my hips been bothering me for like the past seven weeks through through the summertime through the off season i don't know what i did and now it's time you know that's that'd be a great time to look deeper rather than waiting until 
uh, everything blows up in your face and now you got to play catch up with your training program. So it gives me information about their if they have pain on basic body weight movements. And then two, it just gives me some information about where I can go with my exercise program. Again, like one of the things that Gray and Lee Burton are pretty clear on is exercise, do whatever you want to do, but it's got to come back and make this test better. Uh, to me, uh, I have a system that I use as far as how to exploit the information that I grab from those tests in order to make someone improve. And, and, and a lot of times we can do that very quickly over a session or two or three. Um, so for me, it gives me like kind of like an exercise roadmap to say like, all right, well, we know we have this that we need to work on. Let's make sure we aggressively attack that in one or two sessions so that we can get on to deadlifting, so that we can get on to squatting. Um, and, and, and the other thing I think that people often don't understand is they want to say like, well, how, you know, we don't have time to, you know, we got to get these guys under the bar. We don't have time to do all this corrective exercise. And first, it's, it shouldn't be all this corrective exercise if you choose the right thing to work on, which is, I think, an error that people often make. They try and do too much. They're like, oh, well, you need active straight leg raise, and you need rotary stability, and you have to have, uh, your planks are bad, and your shoulder mobility is poor, and they're trying to... Uh, they're trying to do all this stuff rather than, you know, trying to find, like, the big elephant in the room and say, let's just aggressively attack that. And while you're aggressively attacking that, you concurrently perform your strength training program within the construct of understanding that athlete's individual limitations as you're trying to improve whatever it is from that task you gathered was uh, something that needed to be focused on. Yeah, I think, I think that last statement there, you know, just describes perfectly... Um, w what the FMS is, and I think that's w another part that people really misunderstand. They, they think that if they score, if they you know if they score poorly, that oh they can't do any strength training. And like Gray never said that, so he didn't. So um, gr great answer. Um, let's move on. Periodization, Patrick. Um, I know this is something that I, I've you know I always bug you at length through emails, just certain questions, or if I don't really if I don't understand certain um, passages that I'm reading in some of the Russian literature. Periodization, what, like, you know, what does that word mean to you? Well, I think if we, uh, you know, if we just look at it very simply, you know, periodization is nothing more than a manipulation of training variables in order to progressively move you closer to obtaining a specific goal, which could be any, you know, a million things. It could be fat loss or muscle gain or getting faster, getting stronger, having better endurance, going longer, improving your mobility, you, you know, whatever kind of your, um, you know, whatever it is you need, whatever your goals are, periodization is a way to manipulate variables in order to allow for continued progress over a specific unit of time, usually or typically several weeks, in order to move you closer to a certain goal. I think that's, you know, a, an easy way to look at what periodization means or at least means to me. Um, and and the different sort of schemes, um, like you know, you have your undulating and your you know con yeah. concurrent model and the block periodization model. Um, I don't necessarily know if there's so much debate going on, but um, can you can you just explain to some of the listeners? Because I know as uh, if there's any young strength coaches listening, because I remember when I used to listen to podcasts, they'd be like, you know, I kind of understood what concurrent and conjugate and and I actually didn't understand what block was at all until maybe two years ago. I remember when I read block I was like, is this not linear periodization? But could yeah. you just give us a brief breakdown of what is concurrent, what is conjugate and, and, and what is block periodization and, and just say maybe give us a reason why one would use one over the other. Yeah, I think you know, whenever I read I, I, I kind of period, you know, training theory is something that really uh, interests me that so I've got like all these books kind of lying around my desk right now on you know I've got like some Eastern German uh, training books and I've got uh, Frank Dick's sports training principles and you know I've got kind of like all these different books sort of lying around on my table it's it's just something that really interests me um, and I think you know when I start to break it down what I find is that there's a lot more similarities between all this stuff sometimes the authors are saying the same thing. They're just saying it in different ways. Uh, but linear periodization would be like, that's like the general basic form of periodization, I think, that we, we all have learned through our 
you know, through our exercise science class or through our strength and conditioning or training certification, where it's basically for a, uh, a you know a long period of time you focus on a low intensity of work, but you focus on like a higher number of repetitions. So maybe it's you know three sets of twelve, and you're working on I guess we could say the first phase is, is work capacity or quote-unquote hypertrophy and then moving to a strength phase and then moving to a power or peaking phase. And usually with linear periodization, when they, when they describe it, these phases are taking place over a very long period of time. So you might be like eight, uh, eight weeks or something of, of uh, hypertrophy and then you know strength and then power and you focus exclusively on that one quality. And... The common knock against that sort of uh, that sort of approach has been that well, if you focus so long on hypertrophy and, and, and developing some sort of uh, fitness base, and then you just focus solely on strength strength training for the next eight weeks, you end up losing some of those qualities that you've worked so hard to gain in previous phases, and then of course power, you end up losing some of the qualities. What happened? So that's that's where people started to develop other sorts of periodization schemes. Undulating is, is another type of periodization scheme where you're looking at maybe different qualities and you can focus on training them. Sometimes people will describe undulating as like weekly or bi-weekly, so like two-week phases of, let's say, two weeks of three sets of eight and then two weeks of six sets of three, so that would be more intense, and then two weeks of, uh, you know, three sets of ten and then two weeks of five sets of two or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's other people, uh, a book that comes to mind would be like Fleck and Kramer's Optimizing Strength Training. That's more of like a nonlinear or daily undulating periodization where you might have Monday is like a strength-focused day and Wednesday might be a, a power-focused day and then Friday might be uh, like that mid-range or I guess we could say like hypertrophy type of focus day. Um, and then the amount of time that you spend on any one of those days would depend on what you're trying to get in that phase of training. Uh, block periodization would be almost, I, I, a lot of people will say, yes, it looks exactly like linear periodization. I think the main part of the block periodization was that, one, you're, you're focusing on a quality in each block, but you're also, ha- you have like retention qualities or retention loads of the other qualities. So maybe strength is like your main quality in a block, but you might work on on uh, aerobic system or something else as like a retention quality or use it for your recovery work to, to maintain the aerobic adaptations that you gained in a previous block. And the blocks are typically over a shorter period of time. The original linear model was commonly used for Olympic athletes, so athletes training over a quadrennial or four years, so the phases would be carried out for a very long period of time. The block model came into play, I think, a lot more when athletes started to have multiple competitions during the year. So they had to have multiple peaking phases. So you might have, like, nationals and then maybe, like, a world championship and then, you know, uh, Pan Am games and then, you know, all you know all these different – there might be three or four uh, – uh, three or four big events that you need to peak for or prepare for. So the block model condensed – training down into uh, into shorter periods of time so that the athletes could peak for these events. Uh, of course, it really works best when the athlete is very highly developed because then these shorter periods of time, are, you get a lot more out of them. If the athlete is not very developed, if they're like a total beginner, then spending only three or four weeks with an accumulation phase or a work capacity phase probably isn't going to get them what they need in order to make sure that during the later phases they can, uh, you know, they can get the most out of them. So it, it is going to work with a certain um, clientele or, or uh, I guess a certain level of athlete. Uh, and there's different terms. It depends on who you read. If you read Vergashansky or Isserin or Bondarchuk, you know, the accumulation, transformation, intensification, and th- different guys have different terms. They're all kind of, to me at least, saying the same thing. Um, 
and, and, and so you could even break it down from general to general specific to specific, where maybe general is very general exercises. So maybe for a soccer athlete, it would be like general strength training, a low volume of sports practice, uh, very general um, aerobic fitness, so like tempo runs and things like that. And then general specific might mean that you're going to get more specific. You're going to work more on like their alactic power going to work more towards the energy system that's going to impact their sport, and then the specific phase would be the actual training uh, and practice uh, or a higher volume of things that are game-like. So that might be your small-sided games or scrimmages or friendlies, as they call them. Uh, that might be like your specific phase, and you have a very low volume of strength work. Maybe in the general phase you were lifting four, three or four days a week with tempo runs and things like that. And now in the specific phase, you might only be lifting twice a week so that you can devote a greater amount of your time to the specific, uh, the specifics of the sport, improving the tactical and skills uh, that you need for that sport in order to get ready for or peak for the beginning of your season. So there's different ways you can break it down. I think people make it very complex at times and... It, it can sound complex, and especially because you read all these different authors and they have different ways of saying at least what I feel like are similar things. But I think if you just break it down into like the very two phases of GPP, general physical preparation, and SPP, specific physical preparation, and very simply, if you look at those two things, it's like GPP. Practice your sport less and focus more on general qualities, strength, fitness. Then... You do that for a certain period of time, and then you transition over to SPP. Practice your sport more and do less amount of strength work, lower volume, lower volume of general qualities. Use the general fitness stuff as recovery for the specific work that you're doing in practice and games. Use the strength work, uh, you know, twice a week or at a low, uh, at a low amount, lower amount of volume in order to uh, maintain or at times even try and gain a little bit of strength off the base that you developed in the GPP phase. And I think you can probably make it as simple as that. And um, that's f f great stuff. And um, what about maybe the, the West Side method? I know there's a lot of guys out there. I met a, um, a, a young man there a few, a few weeks back at a conference and you know, he he was kind of at a point in his kind of young strength conditioning career where he's like, oh, I'm I'm just reading the Westside Book of Method. I'm getting into you know the the conjugate method and and all this. And it's actually funny too because as far as I know, really what Louis does is actually a concurrent method. The conjugate method is a completely other thing. It's 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 a uh, it, he just he just kind of misused the phrase again. As you said, it, so people are always it's semantics with a lot of people, but but Louis always calls it conjugate. But um, what's your take on the West Side method? A lot of strength coaches in the states seem to use that as their main sort of way to to train athletes. Yeah. Uh, well, well um, I think you might be right about the, the terminology. At least if if my Mel Siff book is correct, he describes conjugate training. And, and his description looks a little bit more like the block model, mm, the yeah. block training model. And then concurrent training would be you're concurrently training all qualities at the same time, some strength, some power, some hypertrophy or like mid-range anatomical adaptation or repetitive effort is what they call it, however you want to say it. They all kind of end up meaning the same thing, I think, to me. Um, so, you know, I don't know that the West Side model is bad. I mean, it was something certainly when I was younger that I used that I, I thought had a great value. I think that concurrent training can be very beneficial uh, for, for lots of athletes, especially as you get into season or, you know, when you, when you have a limited amount of time to train and you have to just do some work because you have that limited amount of time because there's so much more time devoted to practice and, and, and to games in the preseason and the competitive season. Um, the, the difficult thing I've always found with the West Side type of programming for myself and for other people that I've tried it with is uh, the maxing out, you know, that max effort every, you know, two, twice a week. Essentially, you have an upper body max effort day and a lower body max effort day, and then you have a, a upper body dynamic effort day, which we could say, or, and a lower body dynamic effort day, which we could say those are quote unquote power workouts. And then you, you have repetitive effort work or the uh, anatomical adaptation work, whatever, six to ten repetitions, um, it, it, following those, those exercises on, on whatever day it is you're working on. And I just found that that stuff would just burn me out. You, you know, I find that you can only go max effort 
for uh, a certain period of time, for a few weeks out of the year, where you're actually really trying to go max effort, where you're really trying to go all out, um, before you start to break down, before you, you start to not be able to recover. Uh, 80 to 90 percent submaximal volume in that rent in that uh, in that percentage range. I felt that I one I recovered a lot easier. My body didn't break down as much, and when it came to hitting the max weights, I could be a lot more efficient because I could output a lot more without crushing myself and knowing that I'd have to do it again two days later for my upper body. And, and even dynamic effort work is, is a lot of drain on the nervous system. So trying to do that kind of exercise four times a week just never felt great to my body. My joints would let me know about it. And so uh, that's one of the things that I do like about the block periodization type of model is, or, or using a, a large general physical preparation phase is that you can take your time and ease into the training or ease the athlete into the training and allow them to build their fitness over a certain period of time before you ask them to do something that's maximum effort. And I think sometimes we get short-sighted in our goals of training because we all want it now. We want to be strong now. We want to have you know, the training effect now. And we sort of lose, lose sight of the fact that strength and fitness qualities like that aren't built in a workout or in two weeks of a workout or in four weeks of a workout. They're really built over many weeks and it's how you manage the training program and allow that athlete to apply stress to that athlete and allow that athlete to make an adaptation and manage the stress of that training program. It's what's going to get you the biggest result over several weeks rather than trying to crush the athlete and see what you can get out of them in a very short-term three- to four-week uh, time period. Mm, great stuff. I think, uh, as, as you said, uh, concurrent periodization, it's, it's great for maybe team sports in season. But, um, yeah, for beginning athletes, it's great for, for beginners. And, and beginner oh. athletes too, I, de I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah. But Because I, in, in I know with, with the Gaelic football team here that you know the concurrent model is very, very good. But I do agree that in the off-season you can actually implement the block model pretty successfully in, in the off-season and coming up to pre-season. So that's great. Yeah, and it, and it also depends on the sport. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can implement it much easier in a sport like maybe track and field oh, or yeah. fighting, you know, fighting or something, you know, fighting, boxing, things like that, where they're preparing for one, one day, one event, one single, you know, one single moment in time with something like football, baseball, soccer, etc., it becomes a little more difficult because now you're dealing with athletes who are trained, aside from football, who is competing once a week, you're dealing with athletes who are usually competing multiple times a week. In something like hockey, baseball, or basketball, they might be competing several times a week every other day. I mean, in baseball, it's a total grind of 162 games. You might be competing six games out of the week. So um, it becomes a, a little more difficult to manage that kind of program when when you have to compete multiple times and that's where you have to you you can use you you'd have to use more of like a, a an undulating program or a, like like Kramer talk about a, a flexible nonlinear program where you can manage the stress of the training by knowing when to push and knowing when to pull based on the athlete's current state of readiness from their game or from their practice. So if the athlete's totally fried, it's probably not a good day to try and do you know, 85% weight in squats or press or something like that. We want to recover, give them a data to kind of uh, back off, allow them to recover, allow them to make sure that they're prepared to do those exercises, or more importantly, when you're in season, prepared to play the next game. Hmm. I actually saw Freck and Kramer at a seminar in Dublin back in August, and it was very, very good. And basically, just that's what Kramer was and Freck were, were really getting across was this kind of ma management of stressors through the nonlinear periodization. Mm -hmm. um, next topic, then, Patrick: uh, energy system development. And this has been a huge topic w within, I suppose, the the uh, the field, and particularly, you know, in among the kind of the, the members and the membership. Um, arena of strengthcoach.com because for the last maybe oh, 
well, I don't know, five years at least, it's been, you know, just intervals, 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 don't do any LSD work, you know, you'll kill your speed, you'll kill your power, and then boom, Joel Jameson came out with a book called Ultimate MMA Conditioning, and also a man by the name of David Tanny, the famous Dave Tanny, came on to the Strength Coach podcast and slapped all our wrists and said, actually guys, that isn't quite true. <laughs> And um, as I said, as I mentioned there, Joel brought out a book, Ultimate MMA Conditioning. And if Joel is listening, that it was a dreadful title, <laughs> because so many people haven't read that book because they kind of looked at it and thought, oh, it's just it must be an MMA book. But if anyone is listening, read that book. It is a fantastic resource, um, and I, I highly recommend it. But um, Patrick was the one who taught me so much about energy energy system development along with Dave Tanny and, and the two guys told me to get that book and I did so Patrick just explain to us energy system development um, just uh, in, in your own in your own way uh, yeah sure well first I'd say that yeah if you if uh, if you don't have that book just get it no matter what just whatever sport you're working with just get it it's a, it's a great explanation of using uh, that kind of training using energy systems, and uh, even even though it's it's written as ultimate MMA conditioning, if you know you can definitely take the ideas from there and apply it to whatever sport you want, uh, uh, whatever sport you're working with. And with energy system training, really, I think what it comes down to, at least for me, is understanding the demands of the sport. What does the athlete need? Is, is the first thing uh, in terms of what do they need to be successful in their sport? Is it an alactic aerobic sport? Is it an aerobic, you know, like, which would be an example would be like a team sport, like a, a football or a, 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 a soccer or something like that. Is it more of a an aerobic sport? Are they an endurance athlete? Is it uh, a marathon runner or a triathlete? Or is it more of a, or is, it a is there a high anaerobic component? Um, Hockey would have a high anaerobic component just if you look at the time of the shifts and the, the amount of, of millimoles of lactic acid that they pull from those guys following a shift, which might be anywhere from 60 or 45 seconds up to three minutes, uh, or other lactic type sports like a 400 or 800 meter runner. So first, understanding the, the demands of what the sport is and then understanding what the athlete needs in terms of their own level of fitness. Uh, so that would help you plan your training or plan your, your blocks of training or however you're going to sequence the training. And so what I mean by that is, you're right, over the past several years, we've often kind of gotten away from looking at other energy systems because everybody wants to do intervals and hard interval work. And, and I think a, a lot of it comes from, or much of it comes from the fact that we like that when things don't have to take a lot of time. We like that, oh, this is great. It's 10 to 15 minutes of 30-30 or 20-40, and you're done. And so we kind of get uh, intrigued by the fact that we can get this. And, and if you look at the research, there's certainly improvements. I mean, I'm not saying that this stuff does not work. Absolutely it works. You know, there's improvements in VO2 max and, and things like that by doing short-duration, high-intensity, interval-type training. It certainly works. Um, so we get kind of enamored by that, and, and I think people have taken that information and been like, well, this is great. We don't have to do anything else. Um, obviously, like anything, too much of a good thing is usually not a good thing, and you end up, it'd it just be like your training program. If you were going to uh, bench press heavy or deadlift heavy five days a week, it wouldn't take a long time for you to break down. We often don't think of our energy system training or our cardiovascular training in that realm because we think of weightlifting as being so so intense, um, so much so much higher of an intensity. So we would say like, wow, if you're going to deadlift heavy on Monday, you probably can't do it again that week, or you need to do less percentage of that load throughout the week. Energy system training can be looked at in the same way. If all we do is maximum effort something that's very, very intense, 30, 30, 20, 40, something like that, uh, we end up just destroying the individual, right? They can't recover very well. We're basically taking away from their recovery reserve. And if you look at research, uh, there was a study on, it was on some interval training, I think it was like Milchak and Houston or something like that, probably like 2010, maybe Journal of Strength Conditioning Research, uh, but they were looking at short sprints, and uh, I mean, these, the, the the individuals in the study didn't do much sprinting. It was probably something like 
500 or 600, maybe even up to 800 total meters or total yards of sprinting. Uh, so it was a very low volume of work, but the the amount of time that it took them to recover from that work, you know, where 72 hours later there's still uh, breakdowns of creatine kinase and things like that, you know, the amount of time that it took to recover from that work was pretty staggering or pretty pretty telling. And that again, that wasn't much work. It wasn't a huge amount of volume, but it was just that they were trying to go all out for a certain period of time, and it, it took them a significant amount of time to recover from that. And if you think about people's training, if you do that on a Monday and then you come in and you lift on a Tuesday and then Wednesday you try and come back and do that interval session again, you might still be needing to recover from, from Monday's training. So you're just breaking yourself down and you're, you're pushing yourself further away from your ability to recover and adapt. And obviously if you do that over several weeks, you start to just get clobbered and, and destroyed. And these are the athletes that end up not making great changes uh, or end up hitting a plateau or they at worst end up having an injury or some sort of, of muscle pull. Whereas if you were to first start out by looking at the individual, seeing what they need in order to make them better at their sport, perhaps they need more of uh, an aerobic system development. And we kind of have forgotten that the aerobic system is what helps the anaerobic system or the alactic system recover a lot quicker in between bouts of work. So 30-30 is great, but after about the third interval, you're not going 100%. You're, you're, you're probably being very good at working around like 80% or 85% rather than giving a maximum effort. And obviously if we look at the type of sport that the individual is playing, if it's soccer or something like that or football, you have this short burst of a lot of work and then there's a huge amount of rest in between there or there's a time period where there's jogging and kind of jockeying for position and trying to get a uh, or trying to get a, uh, a position on the field or blocking a guy or you know running a play or something like that before you have to go ahead and and give another intense bout of work and if you don't have a, a fitness level to obviously recover you from from the intense bouts of work you end up relying on the lactic system a lot more and that's not a very efficient energy system so but I'm not saying this of course to to say that you shouldn't do the other stuff. It's just that it needs to be planned appropriately to get the most out of it. And if you have a better developed aerobic system, when you go and do the interval training later on in your program, during your uh, in your program design, you might find that you'll get a lot more out of it, you can output a lot more, and the, the result will be a lot more efficient and effective. And you've also developed this fitness quality, that's going to raise your level of stress resistance so you can tolerate a lot more of stress from training and games and recover a lot quicker. And that's a very important thing to have for a team sport athlete who's playing multiple games a week for extended months at a time in, in a competitive season. Great stuff. <clears throat> so you, just in your, in your closing statement there, you mentioned the word recovery. And this is also another area I think that a lot of coaches really lack knowledge in because I think you know yourself the the kind of mentality of more is better uh, and and you know you know no pain and no gain all these kind of sort of sayings or these sort of cliches uh, and it, people seem to lose sight of that recovery is actually more important if not or is as important if not more important that it, it like, you know if you really you know talk to someone and say you do realize you don't actually get strong in the gym you get stronger when you recover and then come back the next time you know it's the stress of adaptation so just talk about stress stress adaptation and recovery patrick okay sure well i mean basic you know kind of like a, a basic look at stress would be general adaptation uh, the general adaptation syndrome, general adaptation theory from Hans Selye, you know, we have an alarm reaction, we have a, a stress type of, of response that's applied to us. It could be applied via training, it could be applied via life stress, so family stress and financial stress and training stress and, 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 and all relationship stress and school stress and all of that stuff. Um, it could be applied to us via a therapist. Manual therapy, soft tissue therapy is a stress that the body has to adapt to. Uh, changes in nutrition program, it's a stress that the body has to adapt to. So in, in general adaptation, you know, basically there's an alarm phase. We, we have the stressor applied to us. Our body uh, breaks down a little bit. 
And then it works really hard to resist that stressor. So it says, okay, whoa, wait a minute. Something's changed. This is a little bit different than normal. Let's try and, and do something to get us back to homeostasis so that we don't break down like this again. And the, so the body climbs back up and it super compensates. So it says, okay, we started at baseline. The stress was applied to us. We broke down a little bit. Let's make sure that we can res we resist that and we get better so that if we get that same stressor next time, it's not going to be so bad. And we super compensate. And that's kind of that curve that you see in most of the periodization uh, type of books. Obviously, if you have that alarm phase and you break down after baseline and, you tr and you're in the phase where you're trying to resist that stressor and you apply more of a stressor, you break down further and you keep breaking down a little bit until you're finally all the way into a phase of what Hanselia called uh, exhaustion or, you know, total, uh, which would be overtraining to us, but it's total breakdown. The body system is no longer able to cope with the stress and, or the training or treatment uh, of applications that are, are being placed upon it, okay? So with recovery and with training, it's first important to remember that stress is the way that we get better. And there's going to be times in training where it's not desirable to be completely recovered, where we want to break down a little bit. We want to push a little bit. Maybe we want to push the athlete a little bit over the next two or three weeks. We want to make them uncomfortable. We don't want them to allow a full recovery so that when we do take our back off week, there's this enormous jump in supercompensation. There's this huge spike in fitness, and the athlete is able to recover and, and make this huge adaptation, and then we do it all over again. And this is, uh, this is what people see when they cycle training and, and what we were talking about earlier with periodization. So there's times where that breakdown is important. Stress is what makes us better. The inflammation that happens, the reactive oxygen species that are released, and the, the cytokines and things like that that are released when, when tissue is damaged via training uh, actually is what makes us better when we, when we go home and rest and recover. Um, and there's going to be times when we want to apply some stress and, and apply it and make the athlete train under a little bit of residual fatigue from the previous training session. Uh, and then of course, the better that you get with monitoring the program and, and finding out the, the individual uh, individuality of each athlete and their own stress resistance, the better that you can apply these stressors and, and see a more favorable a more favorable result. So through training, there, there's going to be times where we don't always want to recover. And, and that's what you see sometimes with athletes who are like, okay, I just did a hard workout yesterday. I need to, do, I need to have like a full-on recovery day. I'm going to go to the spa. I'm going to sit in the, in the hot tub. Then I'm going to go to the dry sauna. Then I'll do an ice bath. Then I'll get a massage. And they want to just do all this stuff. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, the more fit that you are, the higher your general physical preparation is, the higher your work capacity is, the greater your stress resistance is, like I mentioned earlier. So the, the better your ability is to recover from training bouts, from competitions, from workouts. If the athlete is unfit, they break down a lot faster. They're going to have to rely more heavily on those recovery modalities. So the first thing is, let's try not to rely on recovery modalities. Let's try and make sure that our fitness level is high enough that we can recover in, in a healthy manner in between training sessions without having to rely on other external means. Okay, So that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is there are times when you want to force that recovery. And that might be especially, one, during the season. So, hey, if you have to play a game on Tuesday and you have to play a game on Saturday again, or you have to play a game on Friday and you only have Wednesday and Thursday to recover, do what you have to do. Find out what works for you, different recovery strategies, whether it's uh, ice bath or sauna or nutritional stuff or meditation or, or mobility work or yoga or massage or whatever it is. Different things are going to work for different people. So find out what works and use it. Exploit it. Make sure that you, you're recovered 72 hours later so you can play and be able to give a maximum effort in your competition. Don't allow yourself to go out into the game with all this residual fatigue where you're still sore, maybe your knees are achy or your shoulder hurts from the last game. Make sure you take care of that self yourself. So there are times when using those recovery modalities is going to be very important, um, but it's important that you, you get fit in the off-season. You develop that general work capacity so that you don't have to rely on it as much. Your stress resistance is very high, and your body can tolerate that 
the, the stresses that are being placed on it through competition. Great stuff. Um, <clears throat> I think as well, uh, a, a lot of the stuff you referred to there was more training based. Do you think coaches only only think about like you know the training stress? They don't really put much stock into, as you were saying earlier, on life stress, nutrition stress, therapy stress, you know, school stress, relationship stress. What, what, what are your views on this in regards to recovery? Yeah, I think um, I think that's a good question. I, I, I think probably a lot of coaches don't think about that stuff. They think about themselves as strength and conditioning coaches. So they're in charge of strength and conditioning, and they don't think about all of the other stuff. And really when I look at the role of the strength coach, I think of it more, uh, you know, you have the sport coach who is, is really focused on the X's and O's of the game, running practice, developing the technical, tactical skills, writing the game plan, figuring out who's going to play, who's going to start, how are we going to manage the game and things like that. You have your sports medicine staff who's usually worried about only the people who are injured, people who need to uh, receive therapy and, and things like that. And then you have the strength coach kind of locked in the middle between these two enormous stressors. So therapy is a big stress and, and especially if you're injured, you have a higher threat perception often and pain can be an issue and anxiety about when can I play again or Maybe my knee hurts a little bit, the coach says I have to play, and, and you have this huge anxiety of, man, if I make that cut out there, I know it's going to hurt, it's going to get worse, etc. And then you have the coach who's applying all his stress. So I think of the role of the strength coach or the physical preparation coach or whatever you want to call it as being more like the ecosystem manager. And, you know, uh, ecosystem of the body is kind of a term that I heard Willem Kramer use, who I, I mentioned earlier. Um, but if you look at the body, basically, it's like this, this whole ecosystem going on. So if you look at ecosystem, if we went out and we looked at the, you know, the pond and you have the, the trees and, and bugs are eating up the pond and, and there's deer there and there's birds there and things like that, um, that ecosystem is all kind of thriving together and everything works together in order to make that ecosystem go. If we were to pollute the water, that'd be a big problem because the vegetation would die and the fish would die and the birds that eat the fish would then have a problem getting food and all of a sudden the bugs that live inside of the water, the algae, that's going to die and, and if the vegetation dies, then the deer have nothing else to eat, etc. The human body is the same way. We have, all these, we have all these processes going on inside our body and we're trying to manage that ecosystem. So you've got training stress, therapy stress, do athletes need more recovery, You've got uh, the, the psychological profile of the athlete. Is this a guy who's like always anxious and has a lot of anxiety? Uh, is a guy relatively upbeat? Is a guy who's really angry and depressed? You have family stress that those guys deal with. Travel is a huge stress. Flying in a plane, sleeping in hotels, different beds, that can be a stress. Nutrition, especially if you travel. What kind of food are they going to get? This can be a problem if athletes are going to different countries. Um, you have relationship stress. You know, they, they've got their wife and then they've got, like, girlfriends in every other city that they play in and, and all of that stuff that they have to manage. And so, they, you know, and then nutrition and how do they eat and how do they sleep? Are they up all night boozing? You know, are they coming in and you can, like, you know, do a massage on them and you're wringing, like, a, a, a quart of vodka out of their muscles every day? You know, what kind of things are, are going on in their body? What kind of processes are going on in their body? As the strength coach, you want to be in tune to all of these these things that make up the ecosystem of that individual athlete and just be aware of them so that you can adjust training accordingly when you find that something is not going right or when you find that you're not getting the appropriate result that you sh think you should be getting from the training program that you've designed. <clears throat> it makes you think that strength and conditioning coach is a, is a bit of a, uh, a narrow uh, title. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that they would all, you know, anybody who works in this field, or works with people or in medicine uh, would uh, do themselves a favor by reading uh, the book Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. That's a great book. Learning about the stress response and, and how the body deals with stress because really when it comes down to it, that's what sport is about and that's what training is about and that's what therapy is about and that's what coaching is about is knowing how the individual deals with what you're asking them to deal with and you know that book is all is, is great in terms of explaining 
life in general as a human being and how we cope with the outside world and diseased states and how those things manifest themselves based on the amounts of stress that are placed on us and how our body responds to those things. So I think, I think that would be a great read for, for pretty much anybody in the field or anybody who deals in medicine or is interested in health and fitness. Great stuff. Um, final question, Patrick. Physical therapy and rehabilitation. Um, from, from what I've heard, it's, it's as poor in America as it is here in Ireland. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that just the, the, what therapists are taught in school is, is of a very poor standard? And it seems to be the same in medicine too and with registered dietitians that they just get taught such bullshit basically. Why do you think this is with regards to uh, physical therapy and rehabilitation? Well, I, I'm, I'm not a physical therapist, so it's, it's hard for me to comment on what they're taught because I've never gone to physical therapy school. Well, but sorry, let, let, let me rephrase that, because I'm the same, I haven't been actually to physiotherapy schools called in Ireland, but we've interacted with them, and, and we, know, we know what they tell us they have been taught, so if, yeah. from, from that perspective. I think when you look at anything, and... and it means anything, anything, physical therapy, chiropractic, athletic training, doctors, medical school, osteopaths, massage therapy, personal training, strength coaches, etc. I think when you look at any of that stuff, uh, you, have to, you have to remember that there's always good and bad in any of those fields. There's always going to be a lot more poor physical therapists, massage therapists, trainers, doctors, than there are good ones because... Let's face it, in order to be great at what you do, it's going to take a significant investment of time in learning your craft. And most people probably don't have the, the, uh, the, the, the gumption to go out and seek out learning opportunities and seek out cognitive dissonance to make them think about what it is they do and seek out these things in order to make themselves improve. Education system as a whole is geared towards the lowest den common denominator. It's geared towards giving you the most basic, fundamental knowledge in order to give you qualification. And it's really your job to go out and educate yourself further. If you want to be a better strength coach, you go out and you seek other great strength coaches and you learn from them. If you want to be a great physical therapist or massage therapist, you seek out learning uh, opportunities, you seek out information in order to make yourself better, but you have to want to do it. And, and the problem is there's probably most people that feel that going to, the, going to school for exercise science, going to school for therapy, massage therapy or physical therapy or chiropractic or whatever, qualifies them to go out and be a professional, which it does, but it doesn't qualify them to go out and be the best. And, you know, to me, my thing was always, you know, I want to be in the top 5%. Like, I want to be up there and be able to walk into a room and say, like, man, you know, I, I'm really confident with what I know, and I know that I can do it really well. And I think that most people are very confident with being mediocre. They're confident with, well, you know what, I get a pretty good result with 70% of the people I work with. And, and you know, to me, 70% um, is unacceptable, you know, and 90% and is unacceptable. I want 100%. And, and I feel, you know, and, and I think that that might be out of reach and, and um, not realistic. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to try for it. That doesn't mean that I'm going to stop learning. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to push myself to ask the questions when I'm not getting what I want with an individual. When I'm not, when when training's not going where it wants to go. And so I think that it takes a, a, a certain personality. It takes a certain person to seek out those types of environments in order to continue their learning. And most people are happy with the base level of education they get in school. And, and that's what they go out into the working world with and, and the professional environment with. And, and that's where they stay and that's where they keep it at. They don't spend time going to other continuing education courses. You know, your, your education starts when your formal education ends. Now it's time to go out and find out the real stuff. Now it's time to go out and find the truth. And I think sometimes in schools and universities, and even it's true for you, you mentioned physical therapy and, and dietetics, but it's true for exercise science, we're taught archaic things a lot of times because it takes, first it takes a long time for thought processes, mentalities, and ideas to change. It takes a lot of time for things to come around, 
full circle and, and come around to different opinions and, and open opening up the doors to different things is one problem. And then the second problem, which I've found in my own university education and taking classes, is that most of the doctors, or, uh, doctors, PhDs, most of the uh, professors are only are teaching to the level of whatever they receive their PhD in. They know up to that point. They know the, the, the information that of the year that they graduated their PhD, you know, graduated from their PhD in, and so they're teaching to the class at that level because they're not doing stuff that really challenges them to think more. I mean, and I shouldn't say not, again, there's good and bad in all professions, so you're going to find the people who are like phenomenal professors, but, but for the most part, I just find that, you know, you know, that's the big issue is, one, most people are happy with mediocrity. They're comfortable with it. Um, they don't care, and then, and then, two, uh, those in education, those in academia that are doing the teaching are also happy with mediocrity. They usually haven't learned more since their their days as a student, and it takes such a long time for things to change and different ideas to come around. Mm, Grace, very very similar to, to how I feel about it too. And uh, I, I'm not too sure if if you said this to me, or I'm fairly sure I heard Charlie Weingroff say, it, but I think Charlie said one time, he said. I strive to be the best, and by the default, that will make me one of the best. So he, basically, as you said, I'm looking for 100% out of 100%, but realistically, I mightn't get that, but striving for that 100% will keep me in that top 5%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I didn't say that, but it, it uh, sounds like something Charlie could say, would mm -hmm. say. <laughs> um, and just, just, just a continuation for the, last, for the last few minutes, and then I'll let you go, Patrick. How do you integrate... Uh, soft tissue work in into your facility in, into your into your training philosophy. Um, okay, uh, the way that I think about it, uh, massage and, and things like that, soft tissue work, I guess, is the term that you use. So we can go with that. Um, the way that I think about that is, so you break it into. I can break it into two very general uh, qualities or separations. So you have soft tissue therapy for restoration purposes and you have soft tissue therapy for corrective purposes. Restoration purposes are, are just like it sounds. We're using this type of therapy in order to aid an athlete in recovering from competition or training so that they can, you know, we can influence them to get to a, a, a better functional state, increase their stress resistance so that they can go back out and play or train, etc. Uh, uh, massage or soft tissue therapy for Corrective purposes is more of a focal treatment which is very geared towards dealing with a specific issue. Maybe it's a mobility issue that we think we need to get a greater range of motion. Maybe it's a, an issue of an injury or pain where we're trying to deal with an athlete who, who has a, who had problems with that, who's trying to get back to play. Or we're part of the we're part of the process with our sports medicine staff, or sports medicine team, or doctors, or chiropractors, uh, or uh, physical therapists. We're we're part of that process in helping the athlete improve to get back to their sport. So we're using the soft tissue therapy for that. So in general, I break it down into those two uh, those two broad categories, and then from there, um, just. You know, you use it how you need it. Uh, so different athletes are going to have different needs, and you figure out what best way to apply those those two categories would be to the individual. And sometimes it's probably a combination of, of both. I would say it's probably more a combination of both when it's soft tissue therapy for corrective measures because you're trying to maybe work with something specific and... Uh, well, I, I, get back. I guess if it's like a, a training day, you're trying to work with something specific and then get them off the table, get them to move, get them to use it. If it's uh, not a training day or something that's more acute, you might be trying to deal with something specific as well as try and use some more restoration type of therapy in order to push them into a, a parasympathetic state or push them into a state of recovery. You're, you're really looking for uh, or trying to create an optimal healing environment within their body. Uh, so I don't think of it as much of like many people think of it as an operator type of mentality where you come in, I do something to you, and you get better, and I fixed you. Um, I think that's, you know, I think to me at least, I am very appreciative of the human body's ability to uh, tolerate stress and, and cope with things and make changes. So really I think of it more as you come in, 
and I do something that interacts with your system, with your nervous system, with your body's processes, in order to aid you or push you into a more of a healing environment, to get you into a, a state where your body wants to recover better or faster. And I, I'm basically helping you get to that state and then allowing your body to do what it needs to do to get better. Just to add on to that, just briefly, you mentioned parasympathetic. Just for any of the younger coaches who are first getting to feel, what do you mean by parasympathetic? So if we look at our autonomic nervous system, which is a division of our peripheral nervous system, uh, it's broken down into two systems, parasympathetic and a, a sympathetic nervous system. Parasympathetic, in, in simplistic terms, would be like rest and digest, Sympathetic, in simplistic terms, would be like fight or flight, right? So sympathetic nervous system is, okay, we've just had a stressor applied to us. Maybe it's squatting a 5RM. Maybe it's playing your sport. Uh, maybe it's walking down the street and someone jumping out from behind a tree and scaring you. Um, but that's like the all systems go nervous system. It's like, okay, it's go time. Ramp up the body. Let's start breaking down energy. Let's start mobilizing, you know, adrenaline. Let's start... Increasing alertness. Let's get the body. You know, it's it's like it's like let's get ready for war. Let's get ready to do battle. Yeah. Uh, and then of course parasympathetic from that battle. So okay, we just played the game on Sunday. Now I'm you know sitting in the in the whirlpool having my post workout shake, and then after that I'm going to go take a nap. I'm you know I'm I'm allowing my body to recover. So it's the it's the opposite. And even though they're opposites, I guess in that sense um, they they. They, they oppose each other or they're antagonists, but it's probably better to think of them as synergists. They work together. So they have this push and a pull, this normal push and a pull. Those things work together in order to provide some sort of balance or autonomic balance for the body so that it, it's in a, in a healthy state, a homeostatic, homeostatic state or homeostasis. Great stuff. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it, Patrick. So thanks, I just want to say thanks a million again for coming on for my first uh, interview. Um, and things didn't go too badly there, you dropped off for, for a minute, but that was my fault, I think it was, that was my internet connection. But uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on, man, and it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, for everyone listening, I mean, I can't say enough good things about Patrick. If I had to repay him in money what I owe him from the knowledge he gave me, I'd be in debt forever. So uh, thanks a million, man, for coming on. Ah, thanks for having me. It's it's uh, it's great to be asked to do things like this. It's it's flattering and um, uh, it's it's awesome. I, I really appreciate um, I really appreciate being on here and you having me on here. Okay, okay, guys. We um, that's it for the first uh, inaugural podcast of the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. I am going to have hopefully Sean Croxon of the Underground Wellness podcast on Monday night, and hopefully I'll get that and this interview with Patrick up during the week, okay? And also, I just got an email from Elizabeth Ryan from Raw Milk Ireland. She is on the campaign for keeping raw milk legal in Ireland. The government trying to make it illegal, so we might do a short interview with Elizabeth tomorrow, and again, also get that up next week, along with this interview and with Sean's one on Monday night. So, stay strong. Talk to you soon. Awesome. That's that done. You still there? You still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope I can put those two together, can I?